Welcome to episode 88 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing wonderful. We're in the middle of some amazing films coming out. Right? Oh, it's very much so. I mean, it's just going to be more and more, so I'm sure we're going to get even more Movie Brats episodes in the near future, um, because this is very much our time of the year, Jonathan. Um, and we're going to be talking today about... Possibly two of the five nominees for Best Actress. Definitely um, two performances that generated a lot of buzz during the festival circuit during the spring and the fall. Um, And we are going to be starting out with Anatomy of a Fall, directed by Justine Trier, who previously directed Sybil and In the Bed with Victoria, starring Sandra Hewler who will be uh, also popping up in a film I'm sure we will be reviewing in the near future, um, Zone of Interest, also starring Swan Arlal. Uh, It is about a sudden, shocking death of a woman's husband at their chalet in France, and the woman, a German writer, has to prove her innocence in a foreign country. It originally premiered May 21st at the Cannes Film Festival, and was released wide in the U.S. October 20th. Uh, It is not currently streaming, so go and see it in theaters if you can. A Metacritic score of 87 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 96. Um, This was the Palme d'Or winner at Cannes this year, which is their biggest prize. So it has been very much uh, sort of front and center for uh, (laughs) cinephiles like ourselves for a very long time. So I was very excited to see this, and um, for me, it very, very much lived up to the hype. The sort of courtroom drama, um, I think, has not necessarily been very well represented in contemporary cinema, but this is one of the finest entries into the genre for a very, very long time for me. Um, What were your thoughts on Anatomy of a Fall, Jonathan? Well, I went into it not really knowing anything about it, besides it won the palm door and was very well reviewed. And I kind of basically knew like a guy falls and there's a courtroom <laughs> a case about it. I, I didn't really know the specifics and I'm glad I went in not knowing exactly what it was about. Interestingly, I think one of the better movies of the last few years is also a foreign film directed by a woman about a court case, uh, St. Omer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which I don't think you ever saw. Which was but, about uh, a child murder or something like right, that. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, Anatomy of a Fall is just, uh, it's just over two and a half hours and it's very dialogue heavy, but it's totally engrossing. It just was uh, pulled into it the entire time. I think that, uh, like you said, I've been, it's like with Lily Gladstone, I've been, a, I've been on her uh you know I've been, a fan of hers. Yeah, I've been a fan of hers or sent women i've been a fan of hers since another movie i don't think you've ever seen did you ever see tony Erdman? no i saw that yeah i saw it film okay. forum oh yeah i adore that movie that's like one of my top 10 favorite films of the previous decade also so quite long of... yes uh very different movie that was like a comedy <laughs> prank comedy uh anatomy of a fall 
is a much more serious movie. But, Very serious. Um, but yeah, it's a film that looks at the idea of truth. Yes. And it's and it's also the idea that uh, in a court case, it's not necessarily what's real or not, what's true what or not. It's convince someone people. to believe. Yeah. Right. And even when you have, you know, it's also very much about what you see and what you don't see because there's the child who's uh, vision impaired, not completely yes. blind, but uh and, and like what you see and don't see or you hear or don't hear. It's also very interesting in a weird way comparing it to the zone of interest, which we can do more thoroughly when we review that. But that film is very much about what we see and don't see, what we hear and don't hear. And uh, but yeah, the anatomy of the falls just uh, it, it's just totally gripping. I mean, uh, there's not that much spoilers, but like I said, I'm glad I went into it not really knowing much about it. Uh, it's a hard movie to spoil because even after you've seen it, you don't really know what happened. Um, <laughs> it's like a movie where the more facts, quote unquote, that you know, the more elusive and uh, more questions you have by the end. Yes, which I thought was really fascinating from the perspective of a courtroom thriller um, because it very much plays with the idea of what is true um, in a way that. At least, like this, the genre, you know, movies like Twelve Angry Men, stuff like that. Um, even ones with big twists, like Anatomy of a Murder or Witness for the Prosecution, there is still something that happened. There is a we, as the audience, know for certain that something happened. The way at the end of the movie, there is a sense of certainty, which very much does not exist in this movie. Um, in it, which I think is something we we talked about a bit with Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it's much more reflective to the way things actually exist in the real world, where certainty, although it's desirable, is not really something that exists um, in many, many situations. And the thing that ultimately matters is what you believe and what you can live with believing, um, which I thought was a very interesting idea to play with. Um but the thing about this movie I was hearing about before I saw it and very much the thing after seeing it is at the forefront of my mind when thinking about it is the performance by Sandra Hewler um, in a multilingual performance that was just stunningly, stunningly brilliant. Um, and a sort of lead female character that um, I don't think we've necessarily seen very often depicted in cinema as someone who really doesn't like give a shit what you think about them. And even when they're on trial for murder um, is more sort of concerned with what they believe and um, the way they see the world than convincing other people that, um, that, you know, there's some innocent um, malleable, um, nice woman. It's, I, I just thought, I thought it was a very interesting character in a, perfect performance of a character um but another thing that really stood out to me in this movie was its use of sound design especially in the first five to ten minutes um where they use one song played at extremely loud volume for a extended period to to really create a sense of sort of being off kilter and it's so distressing discomfort. yeah it's very distressing and it, it really sort of puts the viewer on the edge of their seat from the very very beginning um and puts them in a position of yeah sort of stress and 
um, a bit like uncomfortable in a way that that I think that that more films should experiment with with putting audience members sort of in a, a position of not knowing and a position of maybe being slightly distressed when they're watching a movie. And that's obviously something that doesn't continue the whole time. It'd be very difficult to go two and a half hours with making people extremely uncomfortable. But I think it's really, really effective for short periods using sound design to um, create a sense of unease in audience members that I thought was really, really effective. And the other thing that I thought was extraordinary was it's, um, sort of visual style in its use of um, the sort of two, we can go back to film theory here, the two sort of competing, um, I guess you'd call sort of modes of cinema or formalism and realism and formalism, obviously foregrounds technique and realism sort of foregrounds, you know, things existing in the real world and being relatable to audience members. Um, but the way that, um, this used handheld cameras and extended takes I thought was just fascinating and how it sort of um, replicated the style of courtroom handheld footage and stuff like that I thought was really, really extraordinary. So for me, this is one of the best like realist movies, um, which also sort of complicates the idea of realism by using things like the foregrounding of sound um, and some other kind of really <laughs> extraordinary formalist elements as well. But um I thought it was a really excellent depiction of of the idea of realism in contemporary cinema. I could I think it'd make a great essay. <laughs> well, it's interesting too how there's all these examples in the film where like they're using a dummy, they're using computer graphics to show how the crime may have happened or if it is even a crime. Uh, so it's interesting how like there's all these and and the idea in a weird way like Killers of the Flower Moon is about how the media portrays you know the how the media portrays. Uh, this you know you know possible crime uh, and it, it makes you think about you know what is real mm -hmm. what may not have been real and 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 I think the movie is I mean I hardly ever I you know yes you can go did the wife actually kill the husband or not but it's not so much that it's more of the question that's interesting than trying to like I don't even after the movie I don't have a strong one way or the other like it's not even that interesting to me it's more yeah. interesting the question than the answer is what's interesting in the film yes the sort of interrogative sort of mode um that exists which i think is i think the best sort of films ask questions without providing answers um which is one of the reasons i really like terrence malick's movies that obviously there are many many directors who sort of operate david lynch mostly does not provide answers for his movies he doesn't like people asking him questions about the meaning of his movies because he doesn't feel it's up to him to provide those answers um, um also i would say one another comparison killers of flower moon both films very much about uh uh bad marriages or complicated marriages <laughs> complicated marriages yes yeah. Yeah, bad uh, maybe is putting well when I mean, you're trying to poison someone. Bad is moralizing it, Jonathan. I know, pushing <laughs> someone off a you know balcony. Potentially and, pushing someone right. off a balcony, um, or potentially poisoning someone and lying to them about it. Um, but I, an element of choice comes into it, and um, I there was like a few sort of taglines for this movie is like this is a a cry a trial movie where marriage is what's on trial and stuff like that um which is true i mean to a certain extent and there's some really excellent uh, excellent exchanges of dialogue between husband and wife especially one that's recreated um 
as a, it's a, it's presented as a sound recording and evidence, but we see it um, depicted as a, as a full motion picture scene, you know, between yes, but, but there's the question too, of, are we seeing what really what, happened? Quote unquote, actually happened or are we seeing what perhaps the people in the courtroom would be imagining, imagining what's happening? Yes. There's always the, there's like even debate in the trial, like, you know, who was hitting whom and, you know, what was actually happening? What was the context? Cause you know, it's like we have audio proof, but we don't know exactly what happens. Still. Exactly. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That it really brings into the question with the idea of proof and things like that. And the idea of objectivity and neutrality um, in ways that I think is, is really, really cool. I think it, I think it pushes the, what the possibilities of cinema are in genre cinema, especially. I mean, I think one could consider this to be part of the courtroom genre, which is a sort of nebulous genre because there aren't necessarily tropes, like identifiable tropes like there would be for the musical or the Western for stuff like that. But one could group together, you know, stuff <laughs> that happens in a courtroom and call it a courtroom genre. Um, and I thought this was the best i've seen in a really really long time i guess if you were to consider like the social network of courtroom drama which i think would be not necessarily accurate but I, one could make that argument that that I might mean, be like the uh, best one since then yeah i mean oppenheimer almost is like partially a courtroom part drama, of it but is not, yes. but but not actually court you know the, the that's one of the, that was one of the interesting things about oppenheimer is it sort of exists in within multiple genres and um, almost exists in like three separate parts that operate in different modes. Um, so yeah, but, yeah, I think this movie exists in conversation with a lot of other movies that that came out this year in an interesting way. I think this has been a really, really good year for movies. Um, and I think this is an excellent, excellent entry into it. And I guess the sort of, um, you know, overarching theme we have for this episode is best actress candidates. Um, and I, there was a lot of buzz that Sandra Hewler was going to be the person to sort of steal the Academy Award from Lily Gladstone. Um, so uh, do you think it's a shoe in that she will get nominated or? Well, I mean, I was looking at Gold Derby and, uh, you know, who knows. Uh, but right now, the experts, if we just look at the experts, uh, they have her right now at number five. Oh, really? Uh, on the predictions, they have uh, Emma Stone, Lily Gladstone, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, Margot Robbie for Barbie, and she's at number five. Oh, interesting. So the the next movie we're going to be doing is not in the top right now. No, it's like way down. But, you know, things go up and down. Despite I, I mean, winning the Best Actress Award at a very prestigious film festival. Um, yes. So I also thought that this did a, uh, it's something I'd like more movies to do is operate within different languages which I think is really, really cool. Um, the Oscar pundit in me was like, oh, does this even have so much English it would disqualify it for being a nominated? And also, it's not going to get nominated. It's not, yeah. It, it wasn't yeah, the, presented the, as France's submission. Yeah, uh, the director, I don't know if this would like get her in trouble, at the, uh, you know, like with the two Leslie, with, the, you know, with their breaking rules, but she posted a meme. You know that meme of, like, someone riding a bicycle and they put a spoke in their own bicycle yeah. and they fall over? She put that as, like, it was, like, oh, the Oscars just, you know, uh, they should have nominated my movie. The director uh -huh. posted that on her Instagram. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen the other movie that's The Taste, the of, Taste things, of Things. Yes. Juliette Binoche. But, uh, yeah. Probably I think more that, French than that one. I think two things. One, 
I don't think number one, the country should not pick what film the Academy should vote on what film, because there have been times where like a country maybe has questionable politics and maybe there's some amazing film that's kind of transgressive. The yes. country shouldn't be picking the movie. And also, hey, if two amazing movies come out in France, nominate two films from France. Why does it have to be one film per country? It's a bit you crazy. Know? Yeah, um, I mean, there have been so many movies, like Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days was not nominated, which is one of the absolute best films of this century so far. How'd that not get nominated? And uh, yeah, I, I won't rant about that, but uh, it's interesting, like the, the last two films that won the Palme d'Or to Tain was not nominated. Uh, I don't think it was even picked as the, I know it wasn't submission. nominated, Yeah, but uh, yeah, two women have won the Palme d'Or last two years in a row. Also, Neon is picked like the last three or four films that won the Palme d'Or. They wrote Parasite, um, Portrait of Lady on Fire, uh, this, and uh, the one to taint. They they have like four Palme d'Or winners in a row. Neon's released. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so I think I might be slightly higher on this one. Yeah, I like the second film more. I love this movie. I thought this was absolutely outstanding. I really, um, it's a movie I thought was very, very good. Probably won't even make my top 10 of the year. It is a shoe in for my top 10. I, I was so impressed by this. Um, so we will move on to our second uh, and the theme of best actress con- contenders. It is Priscilla, directed by Sofia Coppola, who previously directed uh, The Virgin Suicides, uh, Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, among others. It stars Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi. Uh, it is based on the book Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. It depicts the romance and relationship between Priscilla and Elvis Presley from Priscilla's point of view and makes for an interesting counterpoint to the Elvis movie that came out last year. It originally premiered um, September 4th at the Venice Film Festival and was released wide in the U.S. October 27th. It has a Metacritic score of 77 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 83. And seeing as you are so high on this movie, Jonathan, I will let you speak first about it. Yeah, I think it's one of the better films Sofia Coppola has done. And I have to say that part of it was seeing it uh, at the New York Film Festival. I mm-hmm. was disappointed a little bit. Uh, I was sad that Sofia Coppola couldn't make it to the screening because she went to be with her mother, 87-year-old uh, Eleanor Coppola, um, who supposedly is not doing too well. But she, uh, the film's dedicated to her, actually. Um oh, yeah, I mean, the movie is really interesting in her filmography. It like so much fits with the idea of, you, you know, this phrase has been used in a lot of the press, but like the gilded cage, like someone that seemingly has a wonderful, you know, life, uh, but they're kind of trapped. You know, it happens in The Virgin Suicides. It happens in Lost in Translation. Yes. Certainly Marie Antoinette. Definitely Marie Antoinette. Period piece uh, based on a real person um but even always uh, to a certain extent the movie she had set in the hotel somewhere somewhere sorry <laughs> yeah, always is spielberg yeah it's spielberg's big bomb <laughs> yeah uh but i i think that uh neither actor i had really seen in anything hardly um kaylee spaney oh. is in uh this movie i think it was actually shot before priscilla but alex garland's new film with kirsten dunst then kirsten dunst has had a long relationship uh, with Sophia Copeland, she's like, hey, you might want to check out this young actress. And one difficult thing is she had to find someone that could be realistically her from age 14 to like yeah. her mid-20s. Uh, and 
I heard Sophia Coppola saying in an interview, she wanted to cast someone where it wasn't, oh, look, it's so-and-so playing Priscilla Presley. I mean, Kaylee Spaney is just so embodies. Like, you don't even think of it as a performance because I'd never seen her before. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. she's she's Priscilla Presley in the film. And I'll say, I think Jacob Eldelori is better than Austin Butler in the film because it's quieter, it's more subtle. It's a very different take on it. Right. I mean, Austin Butler doesn't really look like Elvis. I mean, and does Jacob, he's too tall, probably. I don't he's think Elvis way is too tall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, he's like, uh, yeah, but it's like uh, six five. Yeah. I know, but it's just also just such a uh, much more quiet movie. I mean, I did like Elvis, but that movie's so bombastic. It's, and, it's exact opposite and sort of narrative yeah. method and in, in the way it presents itself to the audience. Yeah. Um, I think one of the strongest aspects of the film, uh, besides the performances, which are excellent, uh, it so gets the period detail right. And there's so many films yeah. that even ones that I like, like Trial of the Chicago 7, I liked fairly well. But that movie, it like, oh, look at the wigs, look at the bell bottoms. And this movie, like the costumes, the hair, the lettering on the fake eyelashes case, it just looks so real. It looks like it came from the time and it just the attention to detail, the carpeting, the 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 way things look in the design of the houses. It's just, it feels so authentic and it's just an incredible recreation. And on a film that, I know didn't have a huge budget. I mean, there was a point where Sophia Coppola was going to whore out Jacob to like, Hey, play pickleball with me. And like, we'll get another day of shooting, but she ended up not doing that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's um, just a really strong, interesting, you know, biopic is like kind of a yeah. lame word, but it, it, it just, it's one of those films where you're getting to see, one of the most famous people of the 21st century, but from the person that was next to them for a major chunk of their life. And you get to see what they went through. And it's just a really interesting perspective because it's like, there's all this glitz and glamor that's like on the edges and you see brief glimpses of it, but it's such a kind of quiet little movie. And I like that very much. It's very, very quiet. Um, it's one of the it's Too one quiet of the, for you. Yes, it's one of the movies I maybe appreciated more than I enjoyed to a certain extent. Um, and I, you know, I very much understood the the mission and what uh, Sofia Coppola was going for. And I think she did achieve that. But I can very much understand why investors maybe were not extremely enthusiastic about financing this motion picture, um, because I have a very hard time imagining it being a good return on investment. I think it made 5 million its opening weekend on a $20 million budget. So I have a very hard time imagining it's going to actually be a profitable movie, which is not the reason movies exist for people who like movies. But at the end of the day, it is why movies get made. They do need to sort of return on investment. Um, so I'm very glad that someone was willing to, to invest in this movie because I'm glad that it exists. But it's not... It's not a movie that sort of serves audiences in a way that audience members might expect. I think I think a less forgiving reviewer might call this movie very, very boring, um, which I well, won't say. I don't really give a fuck what audiences who gave <laughs> who made Five Nights at Freddy's $80 million opening week. And I don't care what they well, I know. I know. But studios do. And one thing I really think Sofia Coppola does maybe better than anyone else right now is the, the use of soundtrack. 
especially the use of non-period soundtrack to sort of create an impression of a feeling, especially uh, like the first song it starts with Baby I Love You by the Ramones, very much not um, of the period. I think it was released maybe 25 years after um, the events it's depicting were set, um, but extremely captures the feeling of the moment. Um, I think it, we need to point out that the Elvis estate did not approve or have anything to do with this film, and therefore they couldn't use any of Elvis's actual recording. So there's but no I don't actual... think that's like a downside for the movie at all. No, it um, made it more creative. I th- and I also think I don't know. This is really a spoiler, but the the final song in the film is interesting because it's a song that I think. Um, well, it's uh, I will always love you. Uh, yes. which Dolly Parton wrote and she recorded, but I think it's best known for being Whitney Houston. And it's an interesting choice of like having this very famous song, but you're seeing it, you're hearing it from, you know, a different perspective than you usually do. Yes. In a weird way. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's the, the the version people are less familiar with. Yeah. And it's being also, the original you know, one. Thematically works, of course. Uh, yes. Because I mean, Priscilla, you know, and the movie doesn't like oh creeper Elvis like you know it's no like, it's very sensitive to him actually and, yeah. and and sees him as like a actually quite sort of understanding and considerate person yeah um, I mean yes it's weird that he was twenty four and she was fourteen when they yes. met but it's like the most he did was like you know kiss her you know it, like and pay that, for that, a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah and you know and you know he got to uh that's what was know. really surprising to me is how chaste it is of a movie. I, like it depicts like kissing and there's a scene where they take pictures of each other in their underwear, but it doesn't really show sex like at all. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those movies you look at like, why did this get rated R? Yeah. Really, yeah. And it, and it actually huge. sort of presents Priscilla as someone who like very much desires him more than sort of he does her, which was an interesting uh, way of showing their relationship. Um, and it very much was sort of focused on her sort of needs in regards to that more more than his um which was something i didn't necessarily expect um but it's 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 definitely a really interesting companion piece to the elvis movie that came out last year and in a lot of ways i think is a more effective movie and and probably a more honest movie um because elvis isn't necessarily trying to depict reality in this sort of strange way i think and also part of that movie it's from the perspective of colonel tom parker yeah which is an interesting choice (laughs) Yes, and uh, let's just say the performance style of Tom Hanks in that movie, I heard someone saying it's almost like he's doing a Batman villain performance. He's doing Penguin. Uh, it's like these performances feel so... Because Elvis is like the number one person you think of. They're like, you know, it's like a, you know, Vegas. It's like a cartoon brought to life, yeah. Right, yeah, he's a, he, you know, there's, El, he's like, what impersonator? Elvis impersonator. It's like, he's yeah. the most impersonated person of the 20th century, probably. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, uh, the Napoleon of our time. <laughs> I know. Uh, Jacob's much, 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 he's like twice as tall as Napoleon was, probably. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, but I, I yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the better films of the year, and I was just really struck by, uh, it's such a rich movie, because it's, it's, and I like that it's quiet and small and subtle. It's like, very, I like very that. quiet, yeah. Yeah, but, like, so what? I mean, I'd rather... No, 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 I know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think it's, it. I think it's a really, really effective movie, and like I said, I think her use of, like, montage and soundtrack is, is second to none. Um, every time 
uh, there's there was one really really cool one. It's like the song from the trailer. I don't know the name of it. That's just sort of like this really buzzy like early '90s, very like grunge sound sort of song that worked really really well with this movie. And I think um, one thing that's interesting is it, it not just like the production design, the costumes, uh, but the look of the movie, the cinematography. It has almost this hazy look to it, like it's almost like it's a memory. Like it, yes. it, it feels like uh like an old Polaroid that's like faded a little bit, but not like it's doesn't have luster to it. Like there it's, it's a really interesting kind of visual look to the movie. Yes. And it, it was really, I mean, it's obvious maybe to me, maybe not obvious to a lot of audience members, but I'm sure it is a factor to them. The way that the, the scenes in Germany are shot compared to the scenes in um, Graceland in Los Angeles is a very, very different color palette and was really, really effective. Um, but yeah, I mean, I saw someone, um, there was like a, someone uh, tweeted out, or I don't know what you call things that are put out on X these days, but X'd out. <laughs> yeah, their X'd out was like, man, like Sofia Coppola really went hard. That shows the, like the relationship between Priscilla and Elvis. And we don't see Priscilla graduate from high school until the first hour is over, <laughs> which I thought was sort of funny. Um, but I did. I, I guess I, it's just so much you don't realize necessarily about how their relationship really was that I didn't realize how late they were married into like how long they had been together. It was like eight years after they had been together it, did they finally get married. And they weren't even really married for that long. It was like six years or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's just I don't know. I think maybe this movie would have been more important and a bigger deal if it had been released when Elvis still held a more prominent position in the sort of cultural framework than he does these days. Like I know Elvis is obviously will live forever. He's like an eternal artist, but um, I don't think he necessarily exists in the same mental space as he used to. Like a lot of the promotional material, Sophia Coppola was sort of talking about Elvis and Priscilla, like they're American royalty, um, which I don't think is necessarily something I've ever really thought. Um, well, in the book that it, it's based on is like almost 40 years old. Yeah. The book came out in the 80s, you know. Yeah. And uh, I do think that uh, when I first heard about Sofia Coppola doing this, I'm like, oh, that's in- it's like I was I was intrigued that she was telling the story. And now that I see the film, I don't know that there was anyone better to tell that story, even though I wasn't thinking of her doing an Elvis press, you know, doing a Priscilla Presley movie. I was like, oh, that she's doing that. I mean, she, it's so hard to pin down what she's going to do because it's like you have like one of the, you know, this really acclaimed novel she adapts as her first film. And she does, you know, this, you know, pro- I still think her best film is Lost in Translation. And then she does Marie Antoinette. And then yes. like she does, uh, you know, uh, The Beguiled, like she's doing that. Like it's it's really interesting, like what she chooses to do. Uh, it's, it's you know, really, you know, they're they're very much they very much go together. But they're so different too, different genres and different kind of uh, things she's exploring. I mean, very but I guess generally things. female focus, which obviously makes yeah. sense. Um, I can't imagine another director could have told the story better than her. I can very much. I, I'm very confident in saying that. Um, and yeah, she just has, she has a real sensitivity to the way she approaches character. Um, and I think it may be in the hands of a less sort of understanding or, or forgiving director. Elvis could have been presented in a much more negative way. Like It's not like we don't see Elvis's flaws. That's actually a big part of this movie is to sort of see Elvis in a um, 
a more human in a more flawed way than than you've seen in other movies. It's it's uh, although it's not like Elvis didn't not show him taking drugs and stuff like that, but this is sort of flaws in a in a more human way, um, right. in maybe a more understandable way. Um, um I will say too the that, performance like, that really stood out to me. I know that that we're talking about this sort of framing as sort of best actress contenders, and Kaylee Spaney is really really good, but Jacob Elordi was very much the standout performance for me. Yeah, I was going to say that it's interesting. Uh, this movie isn't really a music biopic. It's like a biopic about a music person, but <laughs> yeah. it's like so much better than like Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yes. That I mean, if we're talking like genres, the sort of musical biopic genre is it's like trash that's being presented as gold. And this movie right. reaches much more artistic and human heights than than any of those have maybe since something like i don't know like walk the line or something like that but even that is a much more traditional musical biopic than this because the main character in this movie does not make music i mean she's just a woman who is in love with a man and has a hard time sort of dealing with you know who he is and eventually decides that she doesn't want to have to deal with it anymore Um, it's just interesting contrast too of like you have this like giant superstar and like her goals are like to be able to go on the front lawn and play with her dog, but she can't <laughs> yeah, do that or get exactly. a job at the in, the in town, you know, a simple yeah. job. Yeah, exactly. And, you, and and one thing the film does really well is that it, you know, it captures like she was like this young woman, this young girl. It's like she and she got swept up in this madness. Yeah, you know, and uh, she had sort of no other frame for understanding the world aside from that for a really large period of her life. Yeah. Um. And so they, it really, it's very much a companion piece with Marie Antoinette, I think, as someone who, um, yeah, the Gilded Cage concept that you talked about at the, at the beginning of our discussion is very much the mode that this is operating in. But yeah, I, I thought Kaylee Spaney was, was really, really good. I'd never seen her in anything before. It's a very lived in performance. Um, it's one of those ones where you sort of forget an actor is playing them. You don't really forget Jacob Elordi is playing Elvis. A lot, a big part of that is because he's so tall. <laughs> like, I don't think Elvis really looked like this. Um, but I thought he was a standout. I thought that uh, I'd, no I've seen a few. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've seen a few episodes of, of Euphoria, but um, this is very you know, different. He's, he's going to be in Saltburn also this fall, and he's going to yes. be in Paul Schrader's new film. Yeah, so it seems like he's very much a rising star. Um, so it seemed like, if no, anything... No pun intended again. <laughs> just everything is in regard to him being a giant on screen. Um, also, I liked I, in uh, Veep, they called the guy, uh, they're listing off nicknames, the Cloud Botherer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he looks like that. I think yeah. Kaylee Spaney is also pretty short. I don't think it helps. I think maybe she's like 5'1". Um, maybe if she was like 5'7", it wouldn't quite look so drastic. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think mean, we're reversed on these. Like, I really like Anatomy of Fall, but Priscilla is probably going to be in my top ten of the year. And we're very like much reversed the, then. Yeah, yeah, but we both very much like these. I mean, I don't yes. know. Yes, yes, you know. but yeah, I think they. I don't know. As like an audience member, Anatomy of the Fall, I found far, far more engrossing. And, um, but it, you know, that's also sort of part of it. Um, but. Like I, when I saw Priscilla, there was like like a decent sized crowd and actually a lot of younger people. Um, maybe they went because, you know, Jacob Elordi was in Euphoria and stuff like that. But I'd be very interested in seeing what like a 19 year old thought of Priscilla. If it was like too slow for them, maybe too quiet. Um, 
I don't know. I'd, I'd just be, I'd be curious to see what some audience reactions were to this. It's a movie I liked very much. I, I think I appreciated it more than I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed the hell out of Anatomy of a Fall. I just like ate that shit off. I thought it was incredible. Um, so yeah, both both movies we liked. I think we'd both appreciate if both of them were nominated for Best Actress, maybe. We'll have to wait and see. More we'll have to wait and see. Lily Gladstone is still my number one. Yeah, we need to see poor things, but... Um, shorter episode today uh, we will probably be back before long with I think the whole 